Now, usually when I preach, I try to draw your attention away from the distractions of the week, things that have been going on in your lives. But this morning, I want to do just the opposite. I actually want you to think about your past week and the things that you went through, especially the hours, the moments, the days that were most difficult. This past week, did you ever feel lonely? Do you ever feel overwhelmed or discouraged? Did you ever feel frustrated? Did you ever feel distant? Did you feel cold? Did you feel exhausted or depressed? Think back to that moment, wherever it was, whatever you were doing, could have been at work, on the work site, at home in the kitchen with the kids, on your commute to and from work, a moment of difficulty, the valley of your week or your month or your year. I want to ask you this question. In that moment, did you ever stop to think that what was going on was from the hand of your heavenly Father? Because in our text this morning, we find this staggering truth those who believe in Jesus, those who are in Christ, as Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, those who are in Christ have this privilege of calling God Abba, Father. This is a privilege that's exclusive to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, but to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, it is a privilege that we can enjoy. It's not only something that is true, but it is something that God wants us to know. He wants us to be assured of this. He wants us to rest in it. He wants us to delight in it. He wants us to revel in this truth, not just that it is true. He wants us to know that it is true, to enjoy the fact that it is true. But I think this is exactly where you and I tend to struggle, because it's one thing for us to know, I'm a child of God. It's one thing for us to intellectually, with our minds, say, okay, I know that God is my Father. It's another thing for that truth to just permeate our attitudes and our actions and and everything about us and our speech and our interaction and the way that we approach the trials that you did this past week and the struggles that you will continue to face this coming month. It's one thing to know it in our heads. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe that I'm a child of God. It's another thing to let that truth deeply impact us so that it shapes the way that we approach life. It's one thing to say, I believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God. It's another thing to be in a hospital room, weeping beside your spouse beneath a tangle of tubes, and cry a prayer of gratitude, my Father, thank you. It's one thing to say, God is my heavenly Father. It's another thing to hear the words, it's over, from a close friend or a child, or or a parent, and and at the same time, no, God is never going to leave me or forsake me. It's one thing to say, I'm a more than conqueror through Him who loved me, and it's another thing to get that tragic phone call or text message and turn to your spouse and say, this is from the hand of God our Father. You see what I mean? It's, it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to understand intellectually in your mind, in your brain, that you are a child of God. It's another thing to let that truth just spill over in your life so that it impacts your attitudes and actions and everything about you. And this is really where we need to be as believers in Christ. This is a truth not just to be known in our minds. This is a truth that needs to shape our lives. This is a truth that needs to spring to the surface 
when you encounter that difficulty that you thought of about your week? How do I know that God wants us to know this? Because it's right here in the Bible. He tells us. He tells us so that we can enjoy this truth. I've been convicted this past week as I have just mulled over and soaked in this passage that I tend to be far too stingy with the joy I allow into my life through the Word of God. Sometimes I think that we approach God's Word as if we're on some sort of diet, as if we're on a low joy, low delight, hold the satisfaction diet. This passage is a banquet at which we can feast without restraint. Because God wants us to know and enjoy these truths. If you are in Jesus Christ, God is your Father. And God wants us not only to know it, but to live it. How does this fit into the flow of this chapter? It's important for us to understand, as I've said already at the beginning, Paul has, has given this announcement that in chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation, and that he explains why this is true. This is what we've been learning this past uh, the few weeks, if you've been with us. So it, it's true because the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But for the believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit has, has snapped those chains that have, have bound you to, to sin and therefore to death. And, and because of that, you are free in Christ. That means you're free from the law of sin and death. And that's going to have an impact on the way that you think. And that's why he goes on to say that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace, and it not only has an impact on the way you think, but because the Spirit indwells you, it has an impact on the way that you live. In verse 12, you're not debtors to live according to the flesh, as we looked at last time, because if you live according to the flesh, the end of that kind of living is death. But if by the Spirit of God you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verse 14, now getting closer to our text, he is linking two sections. The first section that we are in, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, is talking about the spirit of life. You see the word life and spirit repeated throughout these verses. But now he's beginning to transition. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And now, Spirit of life, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, beginning of verse 14 and through 17, the spirit of adoption. What I want to focus on in our text this morning are two things that we see in this passage, and that is, as believers in Christ, we have assurance as God's children, and we have an inheritance as God's children. Just, just two simple truths that, that are being taught here in this passage, and you see uh, this inference in verse 17, and if children, which is what he has been demonstrating from verses 14, 16, and 17, then heirs. If you are a child of God, then you are also an heir of God. If children, then heirs. And so in this passage, we have an assurance that we are God's children, and we are taught that we have an inheritance as God's children. And brothers and sisters in Christ, what I want us to do is to enjoy this as a feast this morning, okay? Take these truths and digest them and bring them into your life so that it changes you. Assurance and inheritance. First of all, as God's children, we have assurance. In verse 15, we see a contrast to that assurance. Look at it in your Bible. See the contrast? 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There is the contrast to the assurance. But you did receive the spirit of adoption. I think it's helpful for us, first of all, before we understand what it means to be adopted, to understand what it means before we were adopted, before we came to faith in Christ. This is the spirit that you did not receive. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Slavery and fear. What were we slaves to? We were slaves to sin. And because we were slaves to sin, what were we afraid of? The wages of sin is death. Slavery to sin results in fear of death. And so what Paul is saying here is, now that you have been set free from the law of sin and death, now that the Spirit of God indwelling you has shattered those chains so that that's not dominating you anymore, this is not the spirit that you've received. You've not received the spirit of, of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, why is this so important to understand? It's important for you to understand verse 15 because you will never enjoy and delight in the full assurance God wants you to have as long as you suspect that you are still a slave to sin. As long as there is a sneaking suspicion that maybe this isn't as sure as I thought it was. Maybe sin does have a hold on my life. Maybe God will abandon me. Maybe this whole thing isn't as secure as they're making it out to be. As long as you have a sneaking suspicion in the back of your mind, this, this spirit of slavery leading to fear, you're never going to enjoy the fullness of the assurance that God wants you to. God wants you to understand the contrast between having the spirit of adoption and the spirit of slavery leading to fear. Horatius Bonner writes this, which I think it so helpfully captures what Paul is saying here. He says, terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit for holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. This is, this is the truth here in verse 15 of chapter 8, is that you, you will not conquer sin, you will not overcome fear as, as long as you're, you're waiting in the shadows, not sure whether the full sunlight of God's embrace and assurance is upon you. But as believers in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you, and it is not a spirit of slavery leading to fear, it is a spirit of adoption. Fear might bring temporary conformity. Fear might bring in your life a kind of slavish obedience. But fear can never produce the grace-motivated kind of living God wants of His sons and daughters. Fear is not a sufficient motivation to give you the joyful, delight-filled life that God wants you to have in obedience to you as a son and daughter. This does not come from fear. It does not come from the slavery of sin. So that's why Paul sets this contrast for us. The contrast to our assurance is, is you've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. I think this is what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love 
cast out fear. Perfect love, the love that you enjoy in God the Father, it casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. This is the contrast to our assurance. This is not the spirit that we've received. So what then do we have as believers in Christ? Not the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but what? The spirit of adoption. So the contrast to our assurance, and now here, the source of our assurance, as you see in the latter half of Romans 8 and verse 15. You have the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, to fully appreciate what this word adoption means, you need to understand something about the culture in which Paul was writing. Adoption for us in our American culture, uh, it's something that people do to when a child, parents have died, or for some reason the parents are unable to care for a child, and, and a family may adopt that child as their own. But, but in the Roman world, adoption was a practice that was not limited to someone whose parents had died, but it was more common among the noble people and even the emperors as a way of choosing their successor. And to choose a successor, a Roman emperor would actually take someone who he wanted to succeed him and say, I'm adopting you as my son so that you will succeed me as emperor. I mean, yeah, yes, that person became that was considered the son, uh, although not the biological son of that emperor, but, but for all practical purposes, this, this heir was a son because he got everything that his adopted father was. This is the idea of adoption. It wasn't just because his parents couldn't take care of him. It wasn't just because the parents had passed away. It's because someone was choosing someone to succeed him. This whole idea of adoption then, understanding in the context of Romans 8, highlights God's gracious intent in bringing us into His family, not just to rescue us from a dire situation, but to give us things we don't deserve. And this is what adoption means. It means that God has graciously chosen us as His children in a way that means we have access to everything that God wants to give us. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is what God has brought about by adopting us. It's His way of saying, I want Him, I'll make Him my son. I want her, I'll make her my daughter. That's adoption. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us, here's the word, for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And when Paul refers then to the spirit of adoption, here's what he means. He means that the Spirit of God is the one who enables and confirms our adoption. That's what it means when he says the spirit of adoption, that the spirit of God brings it about in our lives and the spirit of God confirms it to our hearts. We know it is so because we have the Holy Spirit. That's what the spirit does for us. That is, what, that is the source of our assurance. Now, how does he do this? Now, now here, here's where the feast gets really good. How does the spirit confirm to our hearts that we are children of God? Look at verse 15. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Here it is. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The cry of assurance is this, Abba, Father. In these simple words, we find an ocean of comfort. We find a whole pharmacy of medicine. 
We find a warm embrace. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, as I prepared this message, I found myself having to stop over and over again, overwhelmed with joy that I can call God my Father. What a privilege. I want to just delve down into this because I said this is a feast, okay? We're not on a diet. <laughs> We're here to, to feast without restraint on these words that God wants us to know. First of all, notice that it is a cry. It is a cry. The, the word cry has the idea of something that springs from the very depth of you. A cry is not something that you rehearse ahead of time. A cry is not something that can be planned out, premeditated. A cry is something spontaneous. A cry is something we, we cry in grief or we cry in pain or we cry in delight or we cry in surprise. We find crying all throughout the New Testament. The same word that's translated cry is the, is the word that's used when the angry mob said, crucify him, crucify him to Jesus. The same word here, cry. The same word is also uh, occurs when the disciples were out on the lake and they see Jesus walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. And the Bible tells us that they cried out in fear. Some translations render this word, they screamed. Can you imagine these, these burly fishermen with high-pitched screams because they think they see a ghost? It was a cry. It emerged from the very depths of their being. A cry is something that springs from who we are. The same word is translated in Matthew chapter 27. Other 20, when the blind man is saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of, David, son of David. The word is used in Matthew 27, 50, when we read that Jesus cried out from the cross right before He yielded up His Spirit. And so, these words, Abba, Father, it springs from who we are as God's children, it's a cry that we're enabled to, to give because the Spirit is within us that teaches us to say, say, Abba, Father. Have, have you noticed, have you felt this as a believer in Christ, that you, that you find yourself crying out to God as your Father? That's the Holy Spirit teaching you to do that. Second, notice what is being cried. Abba. It is the Aramaic word for Father. It's a simple word. Simple enough for a baby to say. Even before he knows how to put two words together, a baby can say, Abba, Abba. C.H. Spurgeon wrote about this word. There are times when we cannot cry at all, and then he cries in us. There are seasons when doubts and fears abound and so suffocate us with their fumes that we cannot even raise a cry. And then the indwelling Spirit represents us and speaks for us, and makes intercession for us, crying in our name and making intercession for us according to the will of God. Thus does the cry, Abba, Father, raise up in our hearts, even when we feel as if we cannot pray and dare not think of ourselves as children, of His children. Have you ever been there when you feel like, I can't even dare think of myself as a child of God, and the Spirit of God within you says, you can cry to Him, Abba, Father. And if it were not for the fact that the Spirit of God teaches us to cry this out, it seems like it would be the most arrogant blasphemy to address the architect of the galaxies as my daddy. And yet this is what the Spirit teaches us to do. Yes, He made heaven and earth. He designed every feature of you. He put you in the place you are, and He's been... He's been conducting the affairs of this world since it began, and yet you from your closet or in your kitchen or in your living room or in your car or wherever you are can say, Abba, Father. 
Someone has said that the only person who dares wake up a king for a glass of water at 3 a.m. is that king's child. Brothers and sisters, we have that kind of access. And again, what a contrast that is with the spirit of slavery leading to fear. I mean, when you look at the contrast, think what, what, think what fear does in your life. Fear makes you want to shrink back. Fear wants you, makes you want to pull away. Fear want, makes you want to put yourself at a distance. We've not received that spirit. We've not received the spirit of slavery that makes us, want, I, makes us think, I want to get as far away from him as I can. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we approach God and cry, Abba, Father. When we see it in contrast, it becomes all the more powerful, all the more beautiful, all the more compelling. Again, these words are not words of self-focus. Did you notice when we cry to God, we're not saying, child, I'm your child. No, it's this lack of self-consciousness focusing only on our Father, Father, Abba, Father. It is a cry. What is being cried is the word for Father, but I want you to notice who is crying it. Look at this verse here. Who is crying it? In Romans 8, 15, it is we who cry, Abba, Father. But this word, Abba, occurs two other times in the New Testament. And I want us to look at those times because the the significance of this will just explode upon our hearts and minds, I think, if we see it. We also find this word, Abba, in Galatians chapter 4. In the same, similar context, emphasizing our Adoption as sons. Galatians chapter 4, would you turn there? Paul is expressing the mission of Jesus Christ. He was born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, you see it? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying. The word crying there is referring to the Spirit of God. So in this context, who is crying it? It is God's Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, who's crying it? It is we. In Galatians chapter 4, it is the Spirit of God. Now, why do you think Paul would use the Aramaic Abba, instead of the Greek pater, to use the word father. He uses it specifically because it is a quotation from Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And I want you to see that as well. Again, like I said, this word occurs here in Romans chapter 8, in Galatians chapter 4, but also in Mark chapter 14. So go to Mark chapter 14, and as you turn there, you are turning to the moment of Christ's agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Judas has left him to betray him into the hands of the religious and secular leaders. His closest inner circle of disciples could not keep their heavy eyelids open to watch with Jesus for one hour and pray with him in the moment of his great agony. In verse 35 of Mark chapter 14, Mark writes, and going a little farther, He, Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Who was crying this? 
In Romans chapter 8, it is we who cry this. In Galatians 4, it is the Spirit who cries it. In, in Mark chapter 14, it is the Son who cries, Abba, Father. You see what's going on here? The voices of this cry, it's not just us. But when we say, Abba, Father, we are joining and blending our voices into a divine chorus of God the Spirit and God the Son to God the Father. And if it were just me, I wouldn't have the confidence to say this. We're just me and you and all our sinfulness and shame and, and triviality and, and, and trials and pain. We would not have the confidence to call God our Father. But when we, born along by the Spirit, echoing the very words of the Son of God that He prayed in the moment of His agony before His crucifixion, oh, then that is a chorus that carries right in the throne room of heaven and in which God the Father delights to hear, Abba, Father, what a privilege. What a feast. What a truth to delight in. By rendering the word Abba in Aramaic, Mark and Paul preserve the very syllables that our Lord Jesus Christ used to address God. And it came at a time of His deepest agony, of His noblest obedience and His utter dependence. And it is these very syllables, Abba, that by the spirit of adoption we cry out to God just like Jesus did. This is something, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you may whisper in your closet, you may sputter it out of the cemetery, you may pray it in the hospital room, in the living room, in your vehicle, but know this, that when you do, God hears it because you're His child as a believer in Christ. Now, we've looked at the contrast to this assurance. You could go back to Romans chapter 8 if you haven't turned there. The contrast to this assurance, you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The source of this assurance is the spirit of adoption. The cry of this assurance is Abba, Father, the recipients of assurance. The recipients of assurance. Who has this? Who's, who's been given this? Here, here's another thing we need to get our minds and hearts around. Assurance is not a Christian luxury item. Assurance is not in the category of Cadillacs and yachts. It belongs to every Christian. Every believer in Christ can enjoy assurance. It's not something that you could say, oh, that's just, I really can't afford that. It's something you have. It's something you have because that's what the Bible says. You have received the spirit of adoption. And as the spirit of adoption is in you, by, by whom we do cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself does bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Who are the recipients of this assurance? It is those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are believing in Jesus. I said there are two parts to this. As children of God, we have assurance, but we also have an inheritance. And I'll deal with this briefly. We have an inheritance. We see this in verse 17. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I'll pause there now. The most astonishing thing about this passage to me is not that we have the privilege of calling God our Father. The most astonishing part about this passage are those three words, heirs of God. Because that means that we can enjoy God Himself. 
heirs of God. This is what God intended for human beings from the very beginning, that they would enjoy Him, that they would thrive and live in His presence. This is what He wanted for Adam and Eve before they sinned. And this, by the grace of God and through the work of Jesus Christ, is what God is going to bring about at the very end of the ages when it says in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that they will dwell with Him and God Himself will dwell with them and be their God. He is our inheritance. We are heirs of God. That means that what is our inheritance? God is our inheritance. And He is our inheritance because of what Jesus has done. We are fellow heirs with Christ. And that goes right along with what we read about in the Psalms. When the psalmist says things like this, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup contrast with the, with the inheritance of the wicked. Listen to these words in Psalm 17. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this, in this life. Their portion is in this life. That's what the psalmist is saying. Their inheritance, it's right here, and that's all there is. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake I will be satisfied with your likeness. That's the inheritance that believers can enjoy. If children, then heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of God. What a feast that is. The verse goes on to say, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But I'm going to wait for that suffering until next Sunday because it links in with the immensity of the glory that awaits us that Paul is arguing that is that makes our current suffering seem absolutely inconsequential. And I can't wait to get to that. At this moment, I think what I want us to do is consider how to apply this assurance to our lives. And there are just three ways in which I think we can make this real for us. By way of application, first of all, let this assurance stay with you. Let this assurance stay with you. It it is good to remind yourself of the fact that you are a child of God. It's good for you to remind yourself of of the fact by crying out to God, Abba, Father, let this assurance stay with you. And second, let this assurance motivate you. As it stays with you, let it motivate you. And here's what I mean by this, is that the cry, Abba, Father, is not just a cry of assurance. It is also a cry of obedience and loyalty. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what Jesus was actually saying when he cried that? What was he actually getting at? He was saying, if if possible, let this cup of suffering pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The, The prayer, Abba, Father, comes in the context of Jesus' moment of greatest obedience And in that, we can bear most resemblance to Christ when we call out Abba, Father, not just in assurance, but in our loyal obedience to God as our Father. Furthermore, what is this adoption anyway? What is the consummation of our adoption? It is, what Paul says a little later on in this chapter, the redemption of our bodies. What is the redemption of our bodies? We have to look even further in the chapter. It is that you may be conformed to the image of whom? Of Jesus Christ. We display our adoption most fully when we look most like Jesus. And we look most like Jesus when we are delighting in and obeying God as our Heavenly Father. That is the aim of adoption. 
That is the, the, God's purpose for our lives. That is where all this is going. That is where every incident that happened this week that I had to reflect on at the beginning of the service, that is what God is divinely bringing into your life to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Let this assurance motivate you. And third, let this assurance delight you. Let it delight you. Feast on it. Enjoy it. Revel in it. Delight in it. Be exhilarated by it. God wants you to if you believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, let this motivate you too, that you must have a relationship with this God. Otherwise, there is no assurance. And if you don't have this assurance, let me urge you this morning, don't leave this place until you have. Please don't walk out of these doors outside until you've talked with somebody and said, I don't know that Jesus is my Savior. I don't know that I'm believing in Him, but I want to. Please talk to me. Talk to one of our pastors. And we can pray with you. And we could explain to you that only by believing in Jesus Christ can you be saved. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, let this assurance stick with us, let it motivate us, and let it delight us. Let's pray together.